Let me have another couple of questions now, please. I'm told that the microphones are now working. So um, I was expecting a forest of hands, but there, aren't, there are no saplings even visible. There's a gentleman here, and I'm sure there must be someone else. There's a gentleman at the back there. Gentleman in the pink shirt. Okay. Uh, hello, Howard McKenzie. I'm representing the Institute Directors uh, tonight. Um, I'm going to ask a question. If I was an oil executive, apart from having a better suit on, I've got to make a decision. Do I land this oil in the, from the North Atlantic at Salomvo, or do I put it in a pipeline to Walkham Bay? What would you tell me to convince me that it should be Salomvo? Okay, and the at the back. Ian Moss, uh, Adam and Company. The, uh, a question relates to uh, demographics. The Scottish economy would need to support um, uh, an increasingly uh, elderly uh, population within the country. How would you see the um, maintenance of um, free care for the elderly, free prescriptions, free bus care, all, uh, pass, passes, all those kind of uh, features which are currently... Um, a prominent feature of the of the policy you've got now, um, uh, with a with a, an increasing reliance uh, of uh, elderly people on uh, on the state uh, to sustain it going forward. Okay, um, on, on Howard's point um, about oil companies, I think the the key point in relation to the encouragement of the the oil and gas sector um, is twofold. Um, the first is that the oil and gas sector requires. Um, great confidence in the stability of the taxation regime in which uh, they would be operating, and um, you know, I, 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 I don't think it's in any way to overstate the case that I think that confidence was utterly shattered by the surprise decision the UK government took in last March's budget. So the point I would be making to the oil and gas companies is that. An independent Scotland, recognising the importance of ensuring uh, long-term sustainability of the oil and gas sector, would be to provide uh, that assurance and that certainty and that confidence on taxation. And the second point, and this is why I, it's another part of the compelling point, because it's, this is the bit that's not just about money, um, is that the Scottish oil and gas sector, um, anchored in the northeast of Scotland, um, is, is a global centre of expertise. Um, it is a tremendous domestic resource for supporting the production uh, sector within the Scottish economy uh, and the North Sea sector, but equally it is uh, a very significant uh, export uh, industry with export potential and export propositions, which are clearly um, a, a major economic opportunity for Scotland. So the um, the, the approach that uh, we would be able to take would be to argue for um, a stable fiscal regime for the sector, but then equally to uh, present access to a very unique opportunity of uh, close proximity and involvement in the development of the sector with the expertise that uh, exists within the Aberdeen and North East economy. And, uh, and, and because of all of the global characteristics that that industry commands. Now, on uh, Ian's point on um, the uh, ageing of the population, one of the, there are a range of services that we provide um, that are uh, on a universal basis and free to, to all citizens. 
And the key point in all of that is that that approach must be undertaken in a, in a sustainable way. And many of the initiatives that, and approaches that the government is now taking to uh, support these services is to put them into a structure which uh, recognises the importance of investing in preventative spending to maximise the health and the well-being and the uh, uh, and the essentially the the ability for independent living of many of our citizens. And you know, front row of our audience tonight is the former convener of the France Committee of the Scottish Parliament, Andrew Welsh, um, in the last Parliament. And um, Andrew presided over a, an inquiry in the last Parliament on which pushed the government to invest more in preventative expenditure to essentially deal with the demographic time bomb that is coming towards us. And that was a very powerful report, and it's had a powerful effect on government because as we went through the spending review process in 2010, uh, 2011, um, Ministers have signed up to a very uh, significant shift in resources into preventative expenditure to address the issues raised by the, uh, the Finance Committee report, uh, but also to prepare our, our public finances to be able to sustain these ventures in the years to come. And so, so that shift of emphasis onto preventative spending is an important part of how we address this particular point. The other factor, and this is very material to the debate, is about um, the, the benefits of economic growth. One of the points I was making, and this is one of the, the rather crude disincentives of the devolved uh, structures in Scotland, I could be supremely successful in taking forward economic interventions in Scotland that would support employment creation, that would have a decisive effect on the performance of the Scottish economy and I would see absolutely no benefit of it within the public finances because I would get my usual fixed sum of money calculated um, courtesy of the Barnett formula from the United Kingdom government and any economic success that we had in Scotland would not percolate through into the public finances of Scotland. And the key advantage of independence is that we see both sides of the balance sheet that if we are economically successful, if we can turn around what has been a long-term concern of the Scottish economy, that we do not have enough, high enough levels of economic growth, that we need to increase these levels of economic growth to support our public services, we actually, even if we were successful in that objective, we wouldn't see the fruits of that within the devolved structure of public finances. So... I don't want that to sound as if I've got no incentive to make the economy more successful. Believe you me, I'm, kind of, um, uh, I'm sweating on a daily basis to try to do that. But I do make the point that there would be an upside of being successful in that respect in contributing towards the sustainability of the public finances to complete or to complement the approach that um, we've taken courtesy of our response to the report that Mr Welsh and his committee put forward in the last Parliament. Can I just follow up on that point a little? I was at an evidence session with the Finance Committee with Andrew's successor just last week, I think it was, when we were talking about universality and the way forward. And an interesting suggestion from the Special Advisor to the Finance Committee was, given the uncertainties over the public finances, that one possibility would be to make universal services initially time-limited, so a decision had to be taken after three, four, five years as to whether that could continue, continue as a universal 
provisional, whether it was time to consider selectivity. Because at the moment, because they are forever until you say they're not, it's very difficult to bring a discussion. But if you require a reconsideration of each of the universally free services at a specified time interval, that gives you the opportunity and your successors the opportunity to at least consider openly uh, within the, the revised environment that you'll be in in three, four years' time. Do you see any advantage well, to that? Well, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm not sure it represents um, a, a process that would be any different to the approach that we have to go through to ensure that our budget is sustainable. Um, you know, if we, you know, when I uh, work with my colleagues to, um, to compile a budget, as I've done on um, a, a number of occasions now, um, we have to make a judgment about the sustainability of the public finances and what can be afforded within the fiscal envelope that we have available. So we are essentially um, making a judgment about what the public finances can support on an annual basis. We do it prospectively on a three-yearly basis and then with more precision on an annual basis. Um, so what, you know, the assurance I can give to Parliament is that the approach that I've taken in the spending review on, on, on two occasions is that our approach to these services is entirely sustainable and um, we, we, we provide that, um, that judgment based on the other choices that we've made in terms of public expenditure because, of course, the, you know, there is a finite sum of money that we have available and we have to make a judgment as to how best to deploy that. Okay, let's go to more questions. Who's next? We've got four hands now, so if we take those... Two gentlemen there first. Uh, if you can, sorry, if you, Alan McFarlane, if you can take it first and then pass it two along, I think it is. So if we take Thanks. one question, yes. Uh, my name is Alan McFarlane. Um, it's really on the monetary issue, and I, I just maybe a, a minor question. You've only talked about the Sterling Union, and I just wonder if that implies any change in the, the euro position, because um, at one stage it was, it was that was the, the, the destination. I don't find the, what you said about the Sterling Union convincing, because the big elephant in the room, of course, is the banks. And the question of how they would be regulated, you've made, and I think based on your own record, an entirely legitimate suggestion that Scotland would be sober in the way that you were describing. But for some of us, you talked about the taxation change for oil and gas. Um, the sign-off, yours for Scotland, to the former chief executive of RBS, said it plenty to me about the nature of um, financial regulation and how that might go in an independent Scotland. Bearing in mind, we do have two colossal global financial institutions headquartered here, and there is already toing and froing about the nature of their liabilities and governance. I think you would have to say quite a lot more about those arrangements and where those liabilities would fall. You're quite right about the currency union of the Benelux, and um, you could even mention Hong Kong and the USA, but I can't think of any other we're quite the set of circumstances in which we find ourselves, and there was a great deal of hope as to how that might work out. So I'd be keen to hear much more granular detail as to how you would envisage those arrangements working, because I fear that is going to be a very big problem as you move towards that debate in 2014. Okay, big question. Gentleman at the front. Good evening. Martin McAdam from Aquamarine Power. We're the Wave Energy Technology Development Company. Uh, thank you, Cabinet Secretary, for coming out this evening. appreciate your vision for the Scottish economy. One of the things you mentioned was the importance of the natural resource in terms of wind, wave, and tidal power. 
one of the questions, the question I have is very simple. Would independence jeopardize our ability to export renewable energy from an independent Scotland? Straightforward question. There was a, so, yes. Uh, could I, David Brew, um, could I go back to the Irish example? Um, many of the policy prescriptions that you've set out for a future independent Scottish government uh, strike a chord because they are very similar to the sorts of policies pursued by successive Republic of Ireland government, uh, governments. Uh, what is it that about a currency union with the rest of the present United Kingdom that would prevent Scotland in 2022 being in a similar position to Ireland in 2012? Okay, well, there are two related questions, a different one. I know there's a gentleman at the front, we'll come to you in the next round. Okay. Um, uh, on Alan McFarlane's point, um, I, I, um, I think we've been making it pretty clear for some considerable time that the government's firm a approach on currency uh, would be to, uh, to continue with sterling and to operate in a currency union with the United Kingdom. Um, we have said that we would... Um, the only consideration that would be given to membership of the euro would be if the economic conditions were correct and um, if the people of Scotland consented in a referendum. Uh, I was asked yesterday, uh, did I see the economic conditions being sometime soon? And I said that I couldn't uh, foresee that the economic conditions would be right in the short or the medium term to take such a decision on the single currency. Um, that was translated into um, uh, the front page of the Scotsman with a message which said um, no euro for at least 10 years, which um, it might be um, well, certainly a newspaper headline without a doubt, but it's not one that I would disagree with. Um, I think that's, uh, I think I couldn't see the issue being considered within that time scale. So, um, on your point, Alan, uh, you know, if, if, if that represents a, uh, a hardening of the government's position, then the government's position's harder on, on, on that subject. Um, on the, 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 the question of financial regulation and um, you know, the, the, the whole issue of um, the, uh, the correspondence between the First Minister and, the, and Fred Goodwin um, in 2007... It was all played out on the, the, the floor of Parliament at lunchtime today in the usual cheerful fashion that these things are, are, are often discussed. Um, and the First Minister rather made a fair point, which was he wasn't presiding over financial regulation of the banks in 2007. So what kind of... Reason, so if, 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 you're, if you're worried about what an independent Scotland might do, I think it's equally justifiable to be most definitely worried about what the United Kingdom was doing with control, with all the levers, and with a commitment from the then Prime Minister who uh, actually wanted to reduce um, below light-touch regulation um, the regulation of the banks at that particular time. So I think, the sh in short, I think the, the best way to sum this up is that nobody could look at the events of the last four years 
without saying that uh, a very different attitude towards um, fiscal um, sustainability and the judgments that have to be applied not just by governments but by financial institutions by the way in which the and the whole approach that's been taken to the capitalization of banks that's uh, underway just now which isn't just a it's not just a, a a united kingdom approach it's a european approach it's a global approach all of these factors have changed immeasurably since 2008 so i think the you know the argument that somehow um the Scottish National Party government in 2007 was in any way out of, cult of, out of kilter with the general approach and attitude that would have been taken towards financial services regulation at that time or the judgments about uh, capital solvency of institutions at that time is, I think, just way of the mark. Now, on the question of the banks, you know, th there's a number of points here. Like the, 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 I, I share the aspiration of the United Kingdom government that the sooner the two banks are back in the private sector, the better. And they're in their own place, they're in the public sector, bringing with them all sorts of difficulties and challenges and issues. So the journey is to get them back into the private sector and uh, able to operate in the fashion that we would expect the banks to undertake. But in terms of shares of liability, so that's the aspiration and the approach to take. In terms of shares of liabilities, Scotland has assumed its share of liabilities of these banks by our participation within the United Kingdom and by the financial security that has been taken forward. Now, how we would apportion such financial liabilities if they still existed in the public purse at the time of independence could either be worked out by a GDP share uh, or a population share in terms of those liabilities. Um, but clearly there's a shared interest on the part of both the Scottish Government and the United Kingdom Government about ensuring that um, the, uh, the, the, the banks um, were operating within the private sector but operating within a climate and an approach uh, that was appropriate to um, the economic circumstances. Now, David um, Brew's question sort of essentially goes from that into, well, how can you avoid... Um, the public finances been jeopardised in the way that the finan public finances of the Republic of Ireland were jeopardised. Well, I think the you know the idea that um, the Republic of Ireland is the only country with uh, a lack of fiscal management is somewhat undermined by the record of the United Kingdom government. You know, there was a public expenditure going on in this country for years that was not sustainable. Uh, given the condition of revenues and income to the Exchequer. And it was presided over and voted through by the House of Commons uh, with much less rigour, I have to say, than the Scottish budget is put through the Scottish Parliament. And I have the scars to, to, to bear that. Um, uh, in a fashion with much less scrutiny and much less uh, consideration of the issues involved. So, and again, I come back to my answer to Al McFarlane. The experience of 2008 onwards is an experience that says to anybody who's operating within the public finances that the necessity for an effective framework of fiscal discipline is now absolutely imperative because of the weaknesses and the failures of most of the events of the first decade of this century. And, you know, I, again, I come back to one of the points I made in, in my remarks. It's often been suggested to me that somehow the, the requirement for one to operate with a tight fiscal framework is something that is undesirable. 
I'm in the vanguard of view that that is an entirely desirable thing because the events of the first decade of this century um, make the case for me uh, better than I can. On the point that um, Martin McAdam raised about um, renewables, the, the renewable opportunity is colossal in Scotland and I think there are two opportunities to realise its full potential um, in, in, in the scenario of an independent Scotland. One is that the rest of the United Kingdom will never be able to fulfil its targets, its carbon reduction targets and its commitments to renewable energy uh, without accessing the resources that uh, we have at our disposal and that we are fortunate to have at our disposal. And secondly, the IELTS project that I referred to, which is a joint venture between the governments of Scotland, the North of Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, is designed to demonstrate how countries can work together on a shared electricity market approach, which is about, uh, literally, about interconnection. Uh, it's interconnection between states, between jurisdictions, and between technologies. And one of the reasons that we took that forward was to demonstrate that it was possible to prove such a methodology. And the IELTS study, I think, is a fantastic piece of work that, that, that justifies that argument. But it's also a precursor to a wider opportunity which is about connecting Scotland to a northern European grid which will open up great opportunities given the very substantial change of direction in energy policy in northern Europe principally uh, within Germany um, and I think the interest and the appetite to take forward an approach which is designed to encourage that interconnectedness uh, is very prevalent within um, the, the, a variety of, of governments and within the industry into the bargain. So there's a gentleman there and then in the front row, sir. Uh, Gene Tidrick. I uh, wanted to come back to the issue of uh, the corporation tax. You've laid a lot of uh, emphasis on using that instrument uh, to attract business uh, in an independent uh, Scotland. Given the uh, strenuous objections of the French and other governments to uh, the use of that in Ireland, do you uh, foresee any possibility that uh, this might become an obstacle to uh, Scotland being allowed an automatic opt-in into the uh, European Union? And just a, a side comment on a remark you just made one. about uh, uh, Irish uh, public debt. Uh, you quoted Paul Krugman. He goes on and on, uh, quite rightly, I think, about the fact that Ireland did not have a public debt problem. It had a private debt problem and a banking system which was too big for a small economy. So some of the issues raised about banking regulation and uh, the uh, role that uh, the financial sector would have in an independent Scotland, I think, are highly relevant. And the last question from Charlie Jeffrey. Uh, thank you, Charlie Jeffrey, <coughs> David Hume Institute and the University of Edinburgh. Uh, many thanks, John, uh, for, for the lecture. Uh, I think the, the, the big thing people <coughs> take away from it is what you said about uh, the Bank of England and uh, a monetary policy framework um, through the, the Bank of England. And what you set out there was essentially a vision of partnership with a different government in the operation of a shared service. Uh, and I think there, there's a similar vision in other fields of, of policy as well. 
Uh, you set that out in a perfectly reasonable way in, in the classic sense of, of that word, with reason, with careful, logical thought. Um, how, how convinced or how confident can we be that your partner uh, would share the same level of reason? Uh, gentleman's question, I'm sorry, I didn't catch your, your, your name, sir. The, the, um, the point about corporation tax and the attitude um, that's taken within the European Union, there are a variety of different corporation tax rates in existence between different countries. Um, the United Kingdom government is currently reducing corporation tax um, at the present moment and have a plan to reduce it, um, I think, over the next um, probably two years, if my recollection is correct. Um, and so there is a, a, a variation of approach that is taken. So I think for all the, the, um, some of the remarks that are made about this question, reductions in corporation tax and variations in taxation have happened day and daily between different countries of the European Union. So I don't actually foresee that as being a significant uh, factor because I think what is important about... And I'm very sceptical about the, um, the approach to fiscal union that, will, that, that is often talked about in the European Union because I think if, if anything is going to uh, create even more difficulty and even more problematic circumstances in Europe, it will be fiscal union um, on top of monetary union. So I think the, um, the issue for Scotland is that we would be operating um, in a fashion that was consistent with using the flexibility that other independent nations within the European Union um, are, are undertaking and I therefore don't see that as having um, a, a relationship to the, uh, to, the, to, to, to the question of EU membership which of course is an obligation that we would inherit as the, a successor state within the United Kingdom. Uh, we would inherit the UK government's treaty obligations and its, its membership of the European Union as a consequence. Now you then went on to talk about the, 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 the private economy uh, uh, problem in Ireland and I think I, I come back to my point that there has to be um, fiscal discipline within a country, and that's uh, you know the, 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 this is an unavoidable um, a, a requirement of the modern age, ever more so by the experience of the last uh, number of years, and that would undoubtedly have an effect on the way in which um, organisations invested and the way in which the public uh, finances were managed. Um, to ensure a more sustainable approach to economic management than perhaps was taken uh, by the Republic of Ireland. Um, final point was from Charlie Jeffrey, which I have to say was a, 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 you know, a, a, a rather cynical question for a distinguished academic. <laughs> I'm sure I, I, well, I was very surprised by it. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's most out of character with uh, the usual open-mindedness that uh, uh, Professor Jeffrey represents. Um, my argument about the currency union, and, the, and I advance this point, is that it would, and, and this is where I think we have to focus on what is the reality of this situation. The relationship is not, in this respect, really between the Scottish Government and the UK, or the rest of the UK Government. It is between the Scottish Government and the Bank of England, and the rest of the UK Government and the Bank of England. And these are two separate relationships, and the relationship is actually with the bank and how we approach the bank and how we work with the bank to essentially observe the fiscal discipline that I've laboured tonight. So I think the, the requirement from the bank's perspective, 
and the interest that the bank would have from its perspective is about what would be contributing to the sterling zone. And what we'd be contributing to the sterling zone would be a very positive contribution to the, uh, the balance of payments within the sterling zone. And as a consequence, I think that would make for a proposition in terms of the Bank of England, which was a desirable proposition and one that would help to encourage uh, the maintenance of monetary stability uh, which would affect both Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom. So I think contrary to um, having to, uh, to, to, to secure agreement of Her Majesty's Treasury, which is something I devote a, a vast amount of my time trying to secure at the present time to many good projects that I wish to take forward, um, it would be a relationship between the Scottish Government and the, gov and the, uh, the, and the Bank of England. And I, I see no reason why that would not be a healthy and open process. Thank you very much, Cabinet Secretary. I worked for 11 months at Her Majesty's Treasury, and I, I learned from that time that there are two great untrue statements. At that time, one was the check is in the post, uh, and the other is I'm from the Treasury, I'm here to help. <laughs> um, um, can I just thank you very much indeed for that tremendous uh, presentation to us and your willingness to answer fully and frankly the questions that were put to you. I actually think that what we've had today is the beginning of the debate on policy rather than just process so far as the impending referendum is concerned. And I think it's hugely important that that policy discussion has started and we look forward to many more salvos in this. Um, I mentioned that Paul Johnson's coming to speak to us. That would be excellent to have someone from the IFS at this time. Um, and I'm delighted he's also giving evidence to the Scottish Parliament Finance Committee. We've then got John Kay coming to speak about equity, and he's doing a review for the UK government about the state of the UK equity market, but I think that must be as pertinent for, for your desire to drive private sector investment as it is for any UK views. We've got the Prime Minister of Lower Saxony, who revels in the name of David McAllister, coming, and is actually one of the great experts on renewables from his perspective and the issues of how they're seeing the renewal debate, I shall look forward to. And um, we have signed up for next autumn the Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland to speak to us. So all of those will be informing that debate. And <coughs> I, I don't like to admit this now, but we've actually linked up with Professor Jeffrey of Edinburgh University uh, to get funding from the Economic and Social Research Council for four conversations on issues related to constitutional change over the next 12 months. So we at the David Hume Institute will be doing everything we can to illuminate in an objective, non-partisan, but entirely sceptical manner, the discussion, as Hume would wish. And I think that what we've had today is something that is a phenomenally good start to that process. I've got a tremendous amount to mull over as a result of what you've said, and I'm sure everyone here has likewise. What I'd like to do now is two things. First of all, to invite everybody present to join us for a glass of wine before exiting into the chill of the Edinburgh night, but secondly, to ask you all to join me once more in thanking the Cabinet Secretary for a, a fascinating evening. Thank you very much.